And there's huge support here for the army, of course, because the people here are the army, and most Israelis trust that the army does the best it can under the circumstances. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. The split screen this week was shocking. On one side, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner smiling with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu as the United States finally finished the 23-year saga of moving the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Israel's capital, Jerusalem. On the other side of the screen, images of dozens of Palestinians dying in Gaza tugged at the heartstrings. We should be unequivocal that Hamas is responsible for their deaths, and it is clear that most of those who died were connected to terror groups like Hamas. But we must nevertheless feel for any family whose innocent loved one died in the clash. Just back from reporting at the Gaza border is New York Times correspondent Isabel Kirshner. With decades of experience reporting from Israel, Isabel has been working with the Times Jerusalem Bureau since 2007, where she has reported on conflicts between Hamas and Israel, the various peacemaking attempts, and the internal divisions in both Israeli and Palestinian society. It's a pleasure to have such an expert join us today. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Before we can even talk about what has happened this week, I want to talk about language. What do we call what happened on Monday? It seems like depending on someone's perspective or their agenda, they might call it a protest, a peaceful protest, a riot, a massacre, a mob. What are you calling it and how do you arrive at that decision? (laughs) Okay, it's a very good question because... uh Basically, it's all of those things. Um, Partially, these were protesters coming, intending to protest peacefully. Uh, Partially, you had others coming with other intentions to actually reach the fence, breach the fence, uh, go beyond the fence. We know that there were maps circulated on social media in Gaza showing where the nearby Israeli communities were and how many meters it was uh, to dash across the field to get there. So there were certainly some uh, non-innocent intentions too. Um, And we've seen in the weekly protests leading up to this, we've seen people throwing stones, firebombs, trying to cut the fence, setting, trying to set fire to the fence with burning tires, which Israel says it will not tolerate its military infrastructure. It has some very sensitive electronic equipment, which can easily be damaged. Um, And then uh, we have seen some other more uh, specific militant attempts, certainly on Monday, where the army uh, said afterwards that there had been an eight-man squad of armed Hamas militants who actually mounted an attack. They were armed with Kalashnikovs, grenades, pipe bombs. Um, They emerged out of one of the protests. Um, I spoke to a couple of the special forces soldiers who were on the front line and actually came under attack at the time, and they said very specifically that the first group of four came out of a protest. Um, When the shooting started, the protesters all fled, Um, but it was a full-on exchange of fire. So I think your question's very in place, and I think the answer is it was all of those things. 
I think that the punditry on this has been confused, even while the reporting, at least in reputable sources like The Times, has been pretty clear. Am I correct in understanding that all of this, this, uh, I'm just going to call it a protest, that this was not in response to, though it was perhaps exacerbated by the opening of the new U.S. embassy in Jerusalem? Uh, It was partly fanned by that. I think uh, what we saw was a groundswell of Palestinian frustration and anger over the decision in December to uh, recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital by the Trump administration. And out of that, there grew, you know, various protests and ideas for protests. But down in Gaza, the uh, primary targets of of this, uh, let's call it the protest, um, were initially breaking the, what the Gazans and the Palestinians and many others call the siege on Gaza. Um, Most Gazans, we're talking about two million residents of Gaza, uh, cannot leave the Gaza Strip. Um, They they have uh, very, very, very limited freedom of movement anywhere. Um, The economy is is dying. Um, Now, of course, we know this is all because Hamas, the Islamic militant group, is in charge there, and uh, it's a hostile border for Israel. And Egypt has also clamped down on its border with Gaza for the same reason. Um, But the people living there are increasingly uh, getting the raw end of all this. And it was largely it began by social media activists in Gaza as an idea to protest the siege. And they called it the Great Return March as, you know, a reference to return in the sense of Palestinian refugees wanting to reclaim their lands in, in what is now Israel. I don't think there was any ever ever any realistic uh, notion that they were going to return and take back their lands, uh, you know, by this protest. But symbolically, that was very much uh, the headline of it. Um, so yes, I think uh, it, it's correct to say it wasn't because you know the, the main goal wasn't just to protest the embassy move, although that was one factor in the build-up of anger there. Um, The date that was chosen originally for the peak of the protest in Gaza was May the 15th, which the Palestinians mark as Nakba Day, or what they call the the catastrophe of 1948. Um, But interestingly, as it got closer to the time, uh, the Hamas leadership, which in the meantime had sort of taken over, adopted, some would say hijacked this protest, uh, they moved the big date from the 15th to the 14th, which was the day the U.S. Embassy was opening. Um, Clearly, there was a strategic desire there to create the split-screen effect that we saw all day, you know, the celebrations and a nice ceremony in Jerusalem and uh, 40 miles away, an hour's drive away on the Gaza border, these terrible, bloody scenes of chaos. Um, And they achieved that goal. Um, so then it took on more of a connotation because of the change in date. You know, it took on more of that connotation that it was also uh, a, a protest against the embassy move. 
You mentioned that Hamas hijacked these protests, this uh, demonstration that was originally supposed to be, we're told, you know, nonviolent and popular. Uh, Over the past decade or so, Hamas has cycled through a few different types of terror or, or what they would call resistance. I think the kind of conventional wisdom is that Hamas gains credibility in the eyes of Palestinians by fighting Israel. So they launched thousands of rockets against Israel. But now, thanks to Israel's Iron Dome missile defense system, that's much less effective. Then there were the terror tunnels dug under the Gaza border to attack or abduct soldiers or civilians. But now Israel has destroyed most tunnels and has developed new technology to prevent future tunneling. So now we come to these protests and rushing the fence. Is that too cynical a way of thinking about this, that it's just the latest in in a long line of Hamas strategies? Um, No, I don't think it's too cynical. I think Hamas is trying whatever it can in its toolbox. And uh, I think, uh, you know, on the one hand, yes, we could say they hijacked the protest that started out as an initiative by a social media activist. Um, Others would say, no, they they needed to bring Hamas in in order to organize it and to fund it and to orchestrate it and get them, you know, get it off the ground. Um, but yes, it is. It, it's another tactic, and yes, many of the others that they've tried, as you said, have, have been closed off. Whether it's the uh, ability to target population centres with rockets or to tunnel under the border uh, without being detected, those things are being closed off. Um, but I think also, you know, we're hearing from both sides of the lines from. Gaza and from Israeli assessments that Hamas is not really interested right now in a major full-on confrontation with Israel. Um, It doesn't think it has much to gain from that now. Um, It's still, you know, Gaza is still recovering from the 2014 50-day war. And Israel's busy, as you know, on the northern border with what's happening in Syria, the Iranian build-up there. Um, Lebanon and Israel also doesn't seem to have much interest now in a major operation or offensive in Gaza. So, you know, maybe this is just uh, not one in the long line of of ways of fighting Israel so much as another kind of way of releasing some of the pressure in Gaza, Um, the way many people have described it, including Gazans, is that uh, Hamas is trying to deflect some of the frustration in Gaza and the anger of people there away from itself and in the direction of Israel. And I think largely that's probably what we've been seeing. Well, let's talk about the people in Gaza for a moment. Tens of thousands of people came out to protest at the border, but there are two million people in Gaza. Do do we have any sense of what the rest of them were up to? Do these protests have widespread support beyond the people who came? Um... It's a very good question. I think there were some people who chose not to go, There are uh, who opposed the idea or didn't want to risk their lives uh, for something that they assumed ahead of time was not going to achieve very much um, and didn't have a great deal of point to it. Uh, there are other people that just didn't go out of apathy, perhaps. Um, I think what we did see there was, uh, you know, a mixture of people. Uh, we saw people who supported Hamas. We saw people who were actually supporters of Hamas's rivals, like Fatah, the mainstream group 
that uh, got booted out in 2007. Um, and there was no factional uh, affiliations on show at the protest. It really was a, a spread of the population of Gaza politically, demographically. Um, but I think if you look at the number of the, the, the breakdown of who was killed on Monday, um, a colleague in Gaza just recently uh, told me today that he'd done an analysis and found that 85% of those who were killed were actually 18 to 30-year-olds. So those were the people presumably rushing to the front and becoming more, you know, militant or active or, you know, uh, putting themselves at more risk. Um, whereas towards the back, where the tents were, and we've seen this every week since the protests began on March the 30th, you had whole families showing up with kids and cousins and nephews and nieces and coming for a day out, you know, having uh, uh, picnics, being entertained there. There were dance troops, there were mass prayers, there were preachers. Um, so it was all of those things and all of those people. Um, I don't know if that goes any way to answering your question. <laughs> yeah, that's that's helpful. It's interesting that you mentioned 85% because that's the exact percentage, assuming I could still do math, of uh, the people who were killed who were claimed as members of terror groups. It was, uh, I believe, Hamas claimed that 50 of the 62 um, were members of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad claimed that three uh, were members of their group. So 53 over 60. That's also 85%. So those numbers kind of check out that it would be the people in that age group overlapping with the people who have those terror connections. Although I, I just like to say when, you know, the, there was one Hamas official, Baradawil, who said in the interview on TV that uh, 50%, uh, 50 of the people there were Hamas. He was kind of saying it in a defensive way because he was being uh, harangued, you know, why why do you guys send all these innocent people to die? You know, there's been a lot of criticism also of Hamas hiding behind innocent mm -hmm. civilians, mm -hmm. uh, children, women. Um, and what we saw on Monday, you know, the leaders who had been there on previous Fridays during the protests, the leaders of Hamas were not there. Uh, some of their sons and, and uh, relatives were, but uh, the leadership itself were nowhere to be seen for most of Monday. So there was some, you know, questions being raised and almost in a defensive way, Badawil said, oh, what do you mean? 50 of the people killed were our guys, you know? <laughs> um, so you can look at it many ways. Now, when, when they say Hamas, it doesn't necessarily mean they were all uh, uh, members of Hamas's military wing. They certainly weren't all armed. At the time, they might have been Hamas militants who decided to take the day off for their armed, you know, training or whatever and, and just go to the fence along with the other protesters, perhaps to uh, urge them on and spur them on. Uh, it, it's very hard to tell, you know, what that means when they say however many were Hamas. Um, I think the Israeli military by now has def identified, I've heard, 24 as being Hamas members. But again, it's not very clear uh, which bit of Hamas, whether they were kind of associated with, affiliated with, supporters of, members of, or, or in some cases, uh, Hamas military wing people who were there in order to, as I say, spur, spur people on to rush the fence. 
um, but were not necessarily in an armed capacity at the time. And actually, um, Israeli Public Security Minister uh, Gilad Erdan said late on Monday or on Tuesday morning, you know, depending on, on the time difference, if these protests continue, then Israel will target Hamas leadership for assassination. And I, I've seen people musing, you know, perhaps that's why the protests haven't continued. That's why Hamas hasn't been, you know, pushing people toward the border anymore, because as you suggested a moment ago, there is this sense that the leadership really doesn't want to endanger their own lives. Do you think there's anything to that? It might have been one factor. Um, it's, it, this is all speculation sure. now. But there was something strange on Monday afternoon. I, I was down there on the Israeli side of the fence and, uh, it, you know, at a meeting point where all the journalists could see a little bit of what was going on um, from this side. And, uh, you know, there was a point in time on Monday when suddenly Hamas said, OK, everybody, clear out. Um, now, this hasn't happened on previous days of protest on the Fridays. Then they just kind of carried on until people got fed up and began to go peel off and go home. Nobody sort of gave them the order. But on Monday, there was a very clear point in time in the late afternoon when Hamas suddenly, after urging people to go to the fence all day, suddenly said, OK, get back and go home. And the place cleared out within 10 minutes. Um, so there's a lot of speculation about why that happened yeah, and that's you know what was behind it. Um, one one theory is you know yes there was this uh, these threats that the leadership would be in the in Israeli sites. Um, there's other speculation that uh, the death toll had just got so high by that point that Hamas did not. And I, I kind of subscribe to this idea that uh, the, the death toll had risen. Um, Israel was already you know, in response to that armed attack I mentioned earlier of the eight armed Hamas militants, Israel was already uh, bombing in broad daylight military Hamas targets in Gaza. Um, and I think there was a point in time where Hamas probably said, whoa, you know, we don't want this to turn into a fully uh, full-scale confrontation with Israel. That's not in our interest. Um, they're bombing from the air now. We have... 58, well, by the time it was all over, more than 60 dead. Um, and, you know, in situations like that, Hamas starts to feel pressure from its own people in Gaza to respond, to, to lash out, to fire rockets. And once you start firing rockets, you don't know where it's going to end. So it could well be that they just reached a point where they thought, you know, whatever was going to be achieved, if anything had, had been achieved, and uh, it was better to call it off. Uh, the next day, which originally, the Tuesday the 15th, which, you know, was supposed to be the peak of the whole thing, Nakba Day, there was hardly anybody there. There were a few hundred at each of the points um, at the most. I think by the end of the day, you know, maybe 4,000 Gazans had arrived in the area, but uh, it was a very subdued, um, very subdued protest, if, if you could call it one at all. Uh, we're waiting to see what's going to happen next, by the way. It's not clear whether the protests will pick up again tomorrow, which is the first Friday of Ramadan. Um, Hamas had called for a, another major day of protest on June the 5th, which would be the anniversary of the Six-Day War. 
Uh, it's not clear if that's going ahead or not. I'm hearing that there are rumors now in Gaza that maybe that won't happen either. So it's all extremely unclear where this is going and why it ended so abruptly. Isabel, I'm a I'm a Times subscriber and uh, an avid reader of the uh, of the opinion page. And this week, I saw an op-ed by a Canadian Israeli journalist Mati Friedman, um, who wrote about how sophisticated Hamas's media strategy is and how well tailored he thinks it is for Western publications. He's been writing for years now about how Hamas has threatened journalists to ensure favorable coverage. Have you ever seen or heard of anything like that happening? Well, um, because I'm an Israeli citizen, I haven't been able to go to Gaza myself for many years, since 2006. So I, I can only speak from hearsay. I think it's it's true to say there have been, certainly have been instances where there's been pressure applied by Hamas, certainly on the local staff that many foreign journalists rely on to help, you know, as fixers in Gaza. Um, and, you know, there's a very uh, concerted effort by Hamas's media machine to create certain images and prevent other images from getting out. But I, I'm not hearing that that was the case so much this time. I, I, I honestly haven't heard of any... Uh, well, you know, we've had people in Gaza the whole time. I haven't heard of anyone coming under any pressure. Um, I think, you know, the fact that this was a different kind of uh, action for Hamas, and, you know, they were calling it obviously a nonviolent protest. Um, you know, you can believe that or not and see with your own eyes and take it with a pinch of salt. But, uh, you know, the fact that uh, it was not a wartime situation, but a sort of mass popular action, I think, changed the dynamic somewhat. I, I haven't seen actual, you know, or heard of actual instances of, of people being pressured into uh, saying certain things or not. I would imagine that, you know, the, the, there's been encouragement by Hamas um, on the Gaza side, certainly among Gazan journalists, to uh, highlight the nonviolent aspects of this campaign and play down the, the less nonviolent ones. But it was there for everyone to see. So there's only so much Hamas can do when this is acting out a longer border. And you have cameras on both sides constantly and, uh, you know, documentation. Uh, there's really only so much Hamas can do to control the message. Yeah, I've heard from many Israelis on the left who are wondering how, with weeks of lead time, the IDF couldn't figure out a way to maintain the border without giving Hamas this propaganda victory of, of dozens of deaths. Um, is there any conversation going on within Israel about what steps Israel can take to prevent a future tragedy like this, both in terms of, you know, in the moment, what tactics can be adopted? And also, are there ways that Israel can assist in rebuilding Gaza, which really has not been rebuilt since the 2014 war concluded, as I understand it, and doing so might be a valve to release some of the pressure that you were talking about that Hamas feeds off of uh, before? Uh, all good points. Look, I, I don't think there's a huge conversation going on in Israel about isn't there another way? Um, many Israelis feel threatened by Hamas. Uh, we, you know, the, the message from this end from the government has been 
constant and consistent that this is a terror organization. It wants to destroy Israel. Um, it's building up its force constantly. It's still, instead of putting its money into helping the people of Gaza to live, is spending its money on building more tunnels and building more rockets. And, you know, this is what most Israelis hear and understand. Um, so there's not a huge amount of mass soul-searching and questioning going on <clears throat> of how how things could be done differently. And there's huge support here for the army, of course, because uh, the people here are the army, and most Israelis trust that the army does the best it can under the circumstances. Um, but yes, I mean, obviously there are the human rights groups who've been questioning the use of live fire in this situation all along, um, not only questioning, but protesting it very vehemently. Um, from what I've been told by army officials, it, it's not so simple when you're dealing with an open area like this and you are trying to, you know, as they say, protect their border and protect the Israeli civilians living a short distance away from the border. Um, they say tear gas is not very effective in these open areas and people determined to get through aren't put off by tea, a bit of tear gas. Um, the skunk water, the foul-smelling water they use in the riot control in the West Bank doesn't really work there, again, because it's too big an open area. They can't get close enough. Uh, the skunk vans are not armoured. Um, we have told that rubber bullets don't work with the kind of range that... Uh, the, the, they, the that are in question there along the border, they have a much shorter range. So many of these non-lethal means to disperse crowds, apparently, uh, the army says, are not so effective. Um, yeah, there are a lot of questions, though. And, you know, the army says it, it shoots at the legs, but sometimes, obviously, they miss or somebody can actually die from a leg wound if they bleed out. I mean, they, they, you know, there are all sorts of variables here which uh, can't be controlled. When it comes to where do we go from here, um, actually a lot of rebuilding has been done after 2014, physically, if we're talking about damaged houses, buildings, you know, that, that has largely been done. But what hasn't happened is, is a change in the basic uh, condition of the Gaza Strip. So it's still... Hamas is still there in charge, and Israel has this kind of ambivalence toward it, where on the one hand, they don't want to ease things so much, take the security risk, um, you know, and strengthen Hamas. Um, but on the other hand, they don't want to get rid of Hamas, because at least there's somebody there in charge and enforcing the ceasefire. Um and, and you have uh, also this tremendous internal conflict going on between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, led by President Mahmoud Abbas, so, which is also very, very hampering when it comes to efforts to change the situation. And in fact, it's going the opposite way because the Palestinian Authority has been imposing its own sanctions on Gaza in an effort to weaken Hamas and uh, has not been paying full salaries to its employees down there um, and has actually worsened the economic situation in the last few months, which many people uh, say has contributed to this whole uh, trouble in the first place.
I saw in one of your articles this week that you spoke with Yael Raz Lachiani, who lives on Kibbutz Nachal Oz, right next to the Gaza Strip. I've met Yael before and, and heard about how much she loves her home there and how difficult it can be to live there. Um, I just want to read this quote because I, I found it remarkable. She said, We and the citizens of Gaza are neighbors, though we no longer have neighborly relations. I have mixed feelings. We don't want to live by our swords, but we do expect our army to protect us. After yesterday, it's a very tough feeling to know that defending me and my children meant hurting others. But they and their leaders put themselves in an impossible position. We have to defend ourselves. These people who live in Nachal Oz are on the front lines, and yet we hear real empathy mixed with a kind of, of steeliness from Yael. You mentioned that Israelis stand by the army, and this will be my last question, but is this kind of empathy typical uh, across Israel? <laughs> it's a great last question. It's not that typical, and the, the great irony is that the people who live closest to the, the Gaza fence on these kibbutzim and who, in a way, know Gaza better because they, in the, the, the old days, before the intifadas and before Hamas and before the fences, um, you know, they used to go and shop there. They used to go to the beach there. They had uh, resident, uh, Gaza Palestinians coming to work in the kibbutzim. Um, some have even tried to maintain some of those relations you know, they have a very different kind of context for all of this. Um, so when you hear Yael talking about that there are neighbors, you know, that she's speaking very, very literally. Um, and I, interestingly, you know, when you, you go down to these kibbutzim there, you actually do hear people who have some ideas of, you know, beyond the tactical, you know, can't we use something else other than live bullets to deal with the situation? They do see an, another option, and they're frustrated that the Israeli government is not exploring it. And that would be the option of a long-term ceasefire with Hamas. Uh, we've heard some indications that Hamas is interested in one. Uh, we're not hearing any interest from the Israeli government. Now, of course, if you were to go to Steyrot, the town which is you know, also a border town in the same area, you would probably hear very different uh, sentiments. In Steyrot, it's much more of a the could base. It's a development town of, you know, the immigrants who came in the 50s from North African countries, etc. Um, much more typical Likud ground. Um, and of course, Steyrot was the first place to be battered by rockets from Gaza um, and has suffered for years from the hostilities there. And there you would probably hear very different sentiments where it would be much more, you know, why don't we just go in and smash Hamas? <laughs> so you really have it all along the border. But, yes, yeah, certainly in the Kibbutzim you have this empathy that, you know, is not that widespread here. But, you know, by being close, even though they are on the front line and have suffered for years from, you know, whenever there is a war, mortar attacks, rockets, uh, people have been killed in those Kibbutzim, a four-year-old boy was killed in Nachalaz um, when a, a ceasefire broke down in 2014. Um, and yet you do find a lot of openness there to some different thinking of how can we make this different, um, not necessarily by military means. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your perspective from Israel. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, 
Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? The new embassy. Good for the Jews? There are those who will tell you that it was a mistake to move the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. They'll say that the move set off Palestinian protests or that it unfairly tried to decide the issue of Jerusalem, revealing the U.S. to be a dishonest broker in the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Those people are wrong. Jerusalem has been Israel's capital since the founding of the state, and it has been the capital of the Jewish people for 3,000 years. It's true that the Palestinians also claim Jerusalem as their own. Someday, if the Palestinians ever accept a peace deal, which would definitely be good for the Jews, they may have a capital in part of Jerusalem as well. Indeed, early media reports about the peace plan that Jared Kushner and others are working on have suggested that the Trump administration may ask Israel to withdraw from four Arab neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, Abu Dis, Jabal Mukaber, Isawiya, and Shuafat. But this week, as AJC joined other lovers of Israel to celebrate the opening of the new embassy in Jerusalem, the United States righted a historic wrong. Even as what happened in Gaza this week was undeniably tragic, what happened in Jerusalem was undoubtedly worth celebrating. Later in the week and with less fanfare, Guatemala followed suit and moved its embassy as well. As more and more countries honor the Jewish people's 3,000-year connection to Jerusalem and recognize what has been plainly true for 70 years, as more countries move their embassies to Israel's eternal capital, that will certainly be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.